Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, according to a national survey done by Abacus Data, the Liberals are ahead by four points, but Aaron O'Toole and Jagmeet Singh's support continues to rise. The big question, how many people are willing to change their vote? Fans will need to be vaccinated or provide a negative COVID-19 test result to watch professional sports at Tim Horton Field this fall. Matt Affinick, President and COO in Business Operations for the Hamilton Tiger Cats, will join us to discuss that. And NDP leader Jagmeet Singh in Hamilton today to make a campaign announcement. What's it about? Well, he'll join us for a preview. And an education group wants the COVID-19 vaccination added to the list of immunizations required to attend school in Ontario. With school starting in just a couple of weeks, is it too late to make this happen? I hope not. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. How are you feeling about the election? Well, we're going to spend some time talking about that on the program today uh, to, to get your pulse about what's happening right now. We've talked about some of the public opinion polls, and uh, they seem to fluctuate an awful lot, which maybe indicates that maybe we as a public are fluctuating a lot, an awful lot about what's happening. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Oksana Kischak, who is a consultant at Abacus Data, who uh, do an incredible job of uh, keeping an eye on what we're thinking and, and the trends that we see these days. Oksana, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you for having me on again. Good well, morning. I'm interested. I'm interested in this because a couple of different things. We're going to get into how people are feeling about the particular parties. But you ask another question, which I think is very germane to the discussion, and that's the mood of the country. Are, we, are you feeling positive about the country? Do you think we're going in the right direction or the wrong direction? And uh, there's been some fluctuation there, hasn't there? Yeah, yeah. We track a lot of different kind of tangential sort of measurements about the election. I think um, we're still a couple of weeks out. It's a, it's a short campaign this year, um, but we're not at voting day yet. And a lot can change. Um, a lot can change on how uh, different party leaders appear in the media. A lot can change how people are feeling, um, other events too. And so that's something that's really important to be tracking. Um, one of the other things that we're tracking as well is sort of approval of the job that's been done by the Trudeau government so far, and that's kind of another measure about how things are, are going so far um, and, and what people are, are interested in seeing, if they want change, if they want not. And right now, uh, we just released some new numbers this morning, actually, and we're at 41% approve and, and 42% disapprove, so, so some tightening there. That's interesting. Uh, almost uh, an even split. And of course, there are some insiders in just about all of these. Uh, but there are some factors, that, as you guys talked about. I mean, because one of the nice things about Abacus, of course, you talk about things happening around the world, too. It's not just within the borders here in Canada. Uh, and the U.S. situation and the Afghanistan situation uh, probably is a contributor to that, isn't it? I mean, an awful lot of people right around the globe right now are very concerned about what's happening there. And that's, that's going to reflect on how they feel about their government. Yeah, no, that's a totally good point. And I think um, at the start of this election, a lot of the, the sort of question that the public had in their mind is, is this the right time for an election? And sort of kind of what's the point going into it? And I think all of those kind of um, issues as current events continue to pop up, and especially uh, they, they will continue as we're in a, still in a pandemic, um, those sorts of things will continue to sort of uh, bubble up in people's minds as they try to figure out um is this the right time for an election and how do they feel about the call happening right now and, and how will that influence their vote uh, come September? Uh, you talked about, uh, you know, whether or not we as a, as a public are comfortable or not comfortable with the way that uh, the previous government, the Trudeau government, uh, has been performing. Uh, it's it's tightening up a lot, a 44% approval, but a significant amount disapproving. Mm -hmm, yeah, and that number has been kind of dancing up and down a little bit. 
um, since kind of the beginning of this year, I think, um, as people sort of are evaluating how the government's performed, how everything's kind of panned out over the past election, that kind of thing. Another metric that we're, we're looking at that's a little bit similar to that is the desire for change. And so we find that today, 71% of Canadians want change in government. Uh, compared to the 2019 election, kind of right before that, it was 69%. So although the number uh, is quite high, it isn't necessarily a predictor of exactly how um, the government will shake out. Um, but I think it's an interesting one to track um, as I guess for this election, people have a lot different sort of things to measure government performance on than we did prior to when we were living in a pandemic. And personal performance, too. You always track how the the, the public is perceiving, well, the, the, mm-hmm. the party leaders. And that's important. You know, let's face it, more often than not, and especially early in this campaign, uh, it's the leaders who are out front and center right now. We're not pen- spending a whole lot of time, I guess, talking about local candidates. Uh, mm-hmm. But the leaders are on TV. They're on radio all the time. Uh, and uh, Justin Trudeau, well, uh, it's, it, there's there's kind of a, a mix here, isn't there, when you talk about who's who's liking what he's doing and who's got some concerns about what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, on one hand, you have, so 42% say they have a negative impression of Justin Trudeau, 39% positive, and I think that's kind of the blessing and the curse of being for the incumbent party is that more people know who you are and more people can have an impression, uh, whether that's positive or negative. And again, that's been something that's kind of been dancing between positive and negative um sort of up and down over the past year. Um, but what we're seeing interesting this week is kind of, this is our first week kind of into the campaign and, and people are kind of getting to see the other party leaders um, who are obviously in the news and, and that sort of thing, but um, that they aren't the incumbent. And so they haven't had necessarily as much time to shine as, as Justin Trudeau has. And both of the uh, other party leaders, so NDP, Jagmeet Singh, Conservative, Aaron O'Toole, have both seen an uptick in positive impressions of them. Aaron O'Toole in particular is up six points. Um, over the past week. So I think that's a really good indication um, that both of them have come out of the gate uh, really good and are making more positive impressions than negative impressions as people start to know more about them. Yeah, Aaron O'Toole right now, positive impression only about 20%. So he's lagging uh, even behind Justin Trudeau in a situation like this. And the NDP, mm-hmm. who are still in third place uh, when it comes to popularity. Uh, yeah. But uh, we seem to like Jagmeet Singh, uh, the personality of him, I guess the, uh, the the effusiveness of him. I don't know exactly what it is with people, but uh, uh, there seems to be a positive vibe as far as he's concerned. Hasn't yet translated. I know there has been a bit of an uptick mm-hmm. in support for the MDP in the last little while, but uh, it's, it's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, we, we want to see if that's going to translate but uh as, as you've told us before there's a long way to go before we actually start voting uh, mm-hmm. on september 20th but the other element i mentioned on my program yesterday and I, you guys track this as well is the advanced polling starting in just a couple of weeks and uh and plus when we know there's going to be mail-in ballots too so this this is a tough one to really put your finger on isn't it oxana mm-hmm. yeah so that's something that we're tracking um as well just because i mean first uh, again we're still in the pandemic some people aren't comfortable going out about for anything, including voting. And so right now we see about a third of Canadians uh, saying that they're planning on voting in person. Uh, about 28% are going to try an advanced poll, and then about 20% are going to try by mail. Um, so kind of a bit of a distribution. Now it'll be interesting, I think, to see how that pans out, and especially across the country as, as COVID cases fluctuate and, and different comfort levels with different restrictions, things like that. Um, but that's kind of a, a metric that's always been interesting to track, but I think is all the more so while we're in a pandemic. And you track, uh, you just mentioned the national scene. Let's talk, I've got a minute left here. Let's go across there. We'll go from west to east here. BC, a tight race now, three-way race essentially out there. Yeah, yeah, things are really tightening up um, in in that area. And I think uh, it'll be interesting to see. Um, I think 
both leaders kind of were kind of making their way across the country there, so pretty tight. Um, if we want to keep going across, Alberta um, is very, very heavily conservative, um, although I'm sure that could have been expected. Yeah, um, no surprise there, right? Not in right? a poll, um, but I mean, just good to see the numbers are there. Same with Saskatchewan and Manitoba, um, turning much more uh, conservative than others, and NDP and Liberal kind of split uh, in Saskatchewan Manitoba. In Ontario... Uh, we still see a Liberal lead at 35% of the vote, 29% Conservative, 26% uh, NDP. And in Quebec, uh, a little bit more Liberal as well, 39, or sorry, 35% uh, Block are kind of second to bat with 29% of the vote. And then in Atlantic Canada, Liberals are taking a definite lead there as well with 45% of the vote. Uh, always great to get an idea as to what's happening here, and the, the, the fluctuations are, are interesting, and uh, that's what uh, we want to continue on a weekly basis to see just what's happening here, to just see what trends are developing. Oksana, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this. Uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon. You too. Talk soon. Take care. Oksana Kischuk, uh, consultant at Abacus Data. Uh, it's, it's tough, as Oksana just mentioned. I mean, there is a pandemic, there is a fourth wave, and people are very concerned. Uh, and you've seen that in the way the campaigns have been run so far. Uh, Aaron O'Toole spending actually a lot of time in his TV studio in a hotel in Ottawa uh, doing virtual meetings. Uh, he has been out on the road, but not as much as, as the other party leaders have. So how do you reach out, and how do you reach people in situations like that? Well, uh, to the surprise of nobody, I suppose, uh, social media is going to play a large role and already has, I think, in this. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Jeffrey Dor- Dvorkin, who is a senior fellow at Massey College and a former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough, author also of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Uh, Jeffrey, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure indeed. Uh, we've already had a couple of, uh, uh, shall we say, rows on social media. Uh, the most recent one, of course, Christia Freeland's tweet about uh, Aaron O'Toole's uh, comments about uh, what was going to be happening with the health care system. Uh, it's, is this going to be a, the main battleground in this election, the, the social media sites? Well, it's certainly going to play an important role in a way that it hasn't in the past. And I think that what we're discovering or what we're seeing, if if the media is reporting this correctly, is a growing antipathy to uh, the Liberals uh, for calling this election in the middle of a pandemic. The question is, will there be, at least for me, will there be some kind of fallout from this distrust of the Liberals, and who's going to pick up the benefit of that? Because I think what we're seeing now, Bill, is that what the, what the digital culture has shown is an increasing distrust of all forms of officialdom and so we're how this translates into the election is going to be very interesting to watch it's i'm getting the same sense jeffrey as i talk to to listeners and and some of the the tweets and and emails that i'm getting out of basically and it's not quite at the stage of throw all the bums out but i mean there's there's a certain uh malaise i guess that people are feeling about this Uh, the election itself and even the people that are in the election right now uh nobody's jumping out and and saying you know this is the shining star here that we're going to gravitate toward that hasn't happened yet and i'm not so sure it's going to well, and I don't think it. I don't think it will. I think you're absolutely right, and I think that there's a kind of a pox on all their houses attitude that's growing. But at, to, to argue against myself, I think <laughs> that these are still early days in the campaign. One, after Labor Day, people will start paying a little more attention to this, and we'll see where it goes at that point. What's the pandemic going to do here, Jeffrey, when it comes to this sort of thing? I mean, we've already 
said just at the beginning of our conversation here that it certainly changed the way that campaigning is being done these days. Social distancing. I mean, you know, we're, we're doing you know forearm bumps as opposed to hugs and kissing babies and that sort of thing. So it's it's a different sort of thing. But it's going to be a different election for voters as well because of, of we're told now an awful lot of people are going to be using mail-in ballots. Uh, so this idea that and maybe the strategy uh, that politicians used to use in the old days of uh, you know what it's we're not really until the last two weeks of the campaign that people really get geared in. So that's where we're going to make the big push. It's a pretty good chance this year, Jeffrey. A lot of people are going to have already voted with it when there's 10 or 14 days left in the campaign. That's exactly right. And I think what we're going to see, Elections Canada has in fact said that in the last election there were about 60,000 mail-in votes. And this time they're talking about 5 million mail-in votes, which means that on election night we won't know who the next government is. And we may not know for several days. This is sort of a much more, uh, in some ways, an American-style election than we've ever seen because the pandemic has created this distancing mechanism between the, the politicians who want our votes and the electorate that is really kind of either disinterested in the election or openly uh, hostile to it. So it's a really interesting place to to watch this election happen right now. And this happens, I know, in some European centers as well, where you know the mail-in ballots, etc., are can be a factor. The one difference, though, uh, between the United States and we all saw the fiasco of the last election. You know, the, the state challenging this and and the Trump team going on is. Each state runs their own election in the United States, even though it's a federal election. Each state has their own laws and regulations. In this country, of course, Jeffrey, as you know, it's it's Elections Canada that runs everything. So uh, they're in charge of everything that comes to the mail-in balloting. So it, we're not going to see, I would think, the sense of confusion that we saw in November in the United States. That's right. We are, we're a little more, maybe in some ways a lot more, organized and willing to trust the government to do the right thing than the americans are so i think this is a this is entirely to the benefit of our political system but at the same time it's really going to be interesting to watch to see how social media has an impact on the on the turnout and on the vote and i'm my my own concern is and this is entirely anecdotal so please dismiss this as as you see fit (laughs) Um, my sense is from speaking to younger people uh, students, former students, is that they are much more impressed with how social media is trying to engage with them than some of the other parties. And this, I think, and this is, again, my 25-cent theory, I think this is going to be of benefit to the NDP, and that the polling on the electorate is really undercounting the influence of that youth vote. In the United States, I read today in the Star, so it must be true. Um, the, <laughs> the, um, the TikTok generation yeah. engendered um, a much greater turnout in the vote in the last American election. The, the tw- 18 to 25-year-olds increased their vote in the United States by 30%. And in some cases, in some parts of the U.S., that was enough to be an anti-Trump vote and even in some cases a pro-Biden vote. And I wonder if um, the polling companies, which do uh, often a, a very good and pretty accurate job, have actually missed counting that TikTok vote in Canada. 
because I am con- I, my guess is is that there is an uh, almost like an underground movement in favor of the TikTok candidates, and that particularly is the NDP. Time will tell. I, I, and don't dismiss your stuff as anecdotal, Jeffrey. I, I consider it expert opinion, so I'll just put it under that category, okay? Oh, well, you're very I, kind. <laughs> always a pleasure, Jeffrey. Thanks for the time today. My pleasure, too. Take care. Jeffrey DeVarkin, of course, uh, from Massey College, uh, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto, Scarborough. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, uh, my commentary at 810 this morning on CHML talked about proof of vaccination. Now, I know this has been a contentious subject for, for many, many months now. Maybe not so much anymore because more and more people are starting to jump on board and understand that this is the best thing to do. Well, the, I was To that end, I was so pleased yesterday, uh, as I told you just around this time yesterday morning, that uh, the Hamilton Tiger Cats and Forge FC here at Hamilton uh, have adopted that policy of beginning on Labor Day for the Tiger Cats the week after for Forge FC, uh, where to get into the game, uh, you have to show you the proof of vaccination or some sort of a positive uh, COVID test. Uh, Matt Affenack, who is the president and COO of uh, business operations with the Tiger Cat Football Club and Forge FC, uh, joins us to talk about this. Matt, uh, great to have you back on the program. First and right off the top, uh, kudos to you and the organization for adopting this policy. How did you come to this idea? Well, good morning, Bill. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, listen, I think um, as we've uh, worked through and surveyed the market, it seems that this is uh, you know across industries uh, becoming the norm, and, and organizations that that host large crowds um, doing their part to encourage the important function of vaccination. And as we thought about it, and you know, health and safety of our players, staff, coaches, fans, everyone involved is always top of mind and paramount, no matter what we do. Uh, and we just felt the time was uh, was right to take this action. And, you know, it's also worth noting that, uh, you know, this is just another example of our partnership uh, with the city of Hamilton, as the listeners would know. So the Tim Hortons Field is a city facility. So everything we do there, we have to do in lockstep and in partnership with the city. Um, so we were consulting with them for some time, frankly, about how we would bring this together and um, have been in lockstep at every point uh, through the COVID process with the city um, with regards to how we implement this in a city facility. Well, it makes all kinds of sense to me, and even since you've made your announcement, I'm sure you saw this, the story that uh, Calgary Stampeders have adopted this. We already know Winnipeg did. That's where the Cats opened the season, and uh, there were a whole bunch of happy Winnipeg fans there, but they were there because they knew that the person beside them was vaccinated and protected. Uh, BC is starting to adopt this right now, Montreal. So this is this is a thing these days, and I think it's it's the smart protocol to have. And, and I'm, I'm relating back, Matt, to, to when the season got back underway, and, and one of the good news stories, as you've told us, is that 99.9% of the people that had season tickets have renewed them for this year uh, because they believe in the football team. But I know there were a handful of people that deferred their season tickets for a year because they were concerned. They might have been high risk or something like this. And you don't want people to, to, not, to have that trepidation thinking, gee, is the person beside me vaccinated or not? Uh, this, I think, is going to assuage that concern to a certain extent and make, make people feel a lot more confident when they go to the ballpark. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, never uh, at a time in, in kind of common civilization, Bill, I think has health and safety been more important. And, and to that end, uh, we actually heard more yesterday from fans that had secure or safety concerns that were contemplating deferral than we did those upset with the policy in terms of inbound customer service. So again, decisions like this, you're not going to please everybody. At the same time, you know, you have to do what's right and what you think's right for yourself, your organization, your fans, and everyone involved. So early reports or early kind of feedback is is you know the people that had had safety concerns had reached out and indicated they want to come back from a season seat perspective in in light of 
um, yesterday's announcement. So, you know, again, early days, it's, 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 a, it's a positive trend for sure. And, you know, you referenced earlier, yeah, I know seven of nine teams uh, in the CFL are now kind of on board with a similar policy. And, and frankly, when you think about it provincially, it looks and sounds like most, if all, not all, teams here in Ontario uh, will have similar uh, policy in place for live events as well. Yeah, I got to assume Ottawa is going to follow suit. And given, given what's happened with the uh, the Elks in Edmonton, uh, I, I would jump th- to the same conclusion that they're probably going to adopt a similar policy to this as yeah, well. Yeah, Ottawa announced yesterday too, Bill. So oh, the Ottawa Sports Entertainment Group. Yeah, so the the Good. Red Blacks are are following the same policy as, as the Tiger Cats and uh, and the Argos have announced from a CFL perspective. Okay, now a couple of points to, just to clarify a couple of issues that, that I was asked about, and I wanted to get some clarification from you if I could, Matt. Uh, when you say proof of vaccination, are we talking fully vaccinated or first vaccination? No, we're talking fully vaccinated. Okay. So it's obviously two weeks following uh, your second dose, so it's, it's a fully vaccinated policy, Bill. And uh, how do you validate that? How do you show that? I mean, so, I know that the, I know governments have been talking about cards and everything. Right? We're not there yet, but I mean, like I've got a picture of mine on my phone. I guess that showing that to, to the people at the gate would suffice, I would think, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So we'll actually within the hour here. So we, we made the policy announcement yesterday. We're going to follow up uh, with season seed holders because, as you know, we're still in the capacity uh, restriction phase of of reopening yep. here in the province. So there's only fifteen thousand seats available on Labor Day, and those are are taken up by our season seed holders. So season seed holders will get communication this morning confirming these details, but I'm happy to share them now. So yeah, proof of vaccination will come in the form of uh, the vaccination or uh, receipt that you would have received uh, when you received your second dose. So that can be printed or the digital PDF can be brought up on your phone. Uh, and you'll have to accompany that with a valid piece of photo ID just to correlate the person and, and the vaccine receipt. So that's how we'll be proving at Gates on game day. And, and as for the positive test, for those who, for reasons uh, that we don't want to get into right now, maybe are not vaccinated, uh, just how, how recent a test, a COVID test is required? Yeah, it's a, it's a negative COVID test, obviously yeah, required uh, yeah. within 48 hours of, of, okay. game, of, of game time, Bill. Somebody asked about the players, uh, and that's interesting. I know Coach Joe talked about that a little bit yesterday, Matt. I, I know that you've got a pretty high vaccination rate within the team. I don't know if it's 100% now, but, but your players are tested on a daily basis, aren't they? Yeah, so the health and safety protocols for the players and coaches, what we call Tier 1, Bill, so everyone involved with the team on a day-to-day basis. It's, a, it's frankly a, a remarkably comprehensive and thorough process for players and coaches uh, around the league, and, and they are tested multiple times a week. Uh, and, and Coach O actually said yesterday on a, a, on a media call, so we have uh, exceeded the 85% threshold for vaccination as, as uh, is indicated as kind of the key factor uh, with regards to kind of health and safety protocol in the CFL. So, um, you know, we're obviously proud of the football team and, and what they've done there, but the, the, the protocol for health and safety uh, for the team, for the players and the coaches um, is extensive. And, and one of the reasons why, as an example, um, you know, practices can't be open as part of this COVID protocol in 2021 is, is for that exact same reason of just a high degree of diligence around safety for the players and coaches and our ability to mitigate risk to keep them on the field. I, I got about 30 seconds left, but on that point, I know we got to go. Uh, I understand pretty good uptake on your vaccination clinics at Tim Horton Field over the last couple of days. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's remarkable. And, and truly, the city of Hamilton and public health of the city of Hamilton, remarkable work. Uh, as they've been doing all across the city, but they deserve all the credit, really. All we did was open up the, uh, you know, kind of Tiger Cat sales and mar- or marketing channels, I should say, just to spread the word and get the awareness. The, the team at the city of Hamilton, again, another example of us, us working together collectively 
um, to try to do the right thing. So they deserve the credit. And yeah, we had several hundred people come through yesterday. The clinic uh, remains open today and tomorrow. So any listeners out there that are in the Tim Hortons field vicinity, 1030 to 230 can come down. Everyone gets a pair of Forge FC tickets. We're doing draws for Ticat tickets and jerseys. So a few hundred people went through yesterday. It was a huge success and great enthusiasm. Saw a lot of people wearing their Tiger Cat and Forge FC gear as they came out for their vaccination. Absolutely. Well, and Ticat tickets on the line, and uh, Forge FC is going to be a hot ticket now, too. Those guys are having a pretty good season. Uh, Matt, we got to run. Uh, thanks so much for the update on this, and congratulations once again on the decision. And uh, good luck in Montreal this weekend. Appreciate the time, as always, Bill. Have a great day. Take care. Matt Apenek, President and CEO of Business Operations for your Hamilton Tiger Cats and for Forge FC. Quick break, and then we're back. The Hamilton Tiger Cats, uh, by the way, uh, Friday, that game will be heard right here on uh, 900 CHML. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we mentioned, uh, federal leaders are crisscrossing the country right now for the election, which is coming up on September 20th. Uh, Justin Trudeau in Hamilton early this morning. Uh, later today, uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is going to be visiting uh, Hamilton Mountain, but uh, he's going to be talking about a number of different issues. And to that end, we're so pleased to welcome the leader of the federal NDP, Jagmeet Singh, to the Bill Kelly Show. Mr. Singh, a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks so much for having me on. Let me ask you, I understand, my sources tell me that, uh, that one of the things that you want to talk about when you get into town today uh, is, is to do with long-term care, now, uh, which is one of the great tragedies, of course, that we've seen over the last few years. And as, as you've mentioned, and we've talked about on this program many times, uh, the pandemic did not cause the crisis of long-term care. It shone a light on it. And uh, we haven't seen too much in the way of, of successful enterprises to try to do a whole lot about it, especially here in Ontario. Uh the problem is, and you've seen this happen in Plato so many times, is any time a federal government decides to, to stray into the area of, of health care, the provinces get their backs up and say, that's our responsibility, just give us the money and let us do that. Uh, are you comfortable with that arrangement? Well, well, I've spoken to a lot of people that have been really hurt by this pandemic. They've lost their loved ones, they've lost their, their parents, their, their mom, their dad. I remember I spoke to this young girl at an event in, in Ottawa, and she said she lost her grandmother, and that was her best friend. And when you speak to people who have lost loved ones because of the neglect in long-term care and the fact that the worst conditions of care come from for-profit long-term care homes, which put profit ahead of, of their residents, which means that they're getting less care, less quality food. When you hear these stories, it, you can't do anything else than say, I want to do whatever I can to make this better, to set this right. And so for me, I feel like a leader looks for solutions the leader doesn't look for excuses and i'm looking for solutions to make sure we never see this happen again like you said this was a long time brewing the problems of long-term care were there before the pandemic they were exposed and they were exposed in a horrific way with the military having to go in and we saw military folks go in that had gone into war-torn areas and they were traumatized by what they saw in long-term care so i want to do anything possible to make sure we we fix this i'm not satisfied with the way things are can you cut a deal with provincial premiers, though, because they're, they're the ones that are going to set up and say, this is our turf, uh, just give us the money and, and let us do this. Uh, and I can make a strong argument, and I'm sure you've seen evidence of it, that uh, they're not doing a great job of it. They're not at all doing a great job. And, and a couple of things that we know we can do that are concrete, that we need to work with provinces, of course, that's something that's a given any time you're in the federal level. But what we're calling for is to start to get profit out of long-term care, starting with Rivera. Oh, I think we just lost the call here. 
the cell phones is that uh, we'll attempt to get back to it to Mr. Singh in just a couple of minutes. Very important topic about long-term care and funding like this. And, and I know that uh, it's one of the main talking points and one of the main planks in the NDP platform, both federally and provincially, is uh, eliminating the the privately run facilities in this province. And uh, it's, it's not easily done. Uh, because the majority of those are privately run facilities. Uh, and uh, there's a concern here about just what kind of a gap that would leave, in fact, if that were to happen. So uh, we'll try to get into that with Mr. Singh in a couple of seconds. The other element that, that, that I know uh, is front and center for an awful lot of people right now we, under the guise of affordability is housing. And uh, I want to get a conversation with Mr. Singh about that, too. Our time is limited, unfortunately, with these sorts of situations. I mean, in the old days, uh, pre-pandemic, uh, invariably, we'd be able to get the leaders in studio. We could talk for 45 minutes or an hour, cover a number of issues, maybe uh, you know, give you the opportunity as, as voters uh, to call in with your questions. Uh, that's all changed. That dynamic has changed because of the pandemic and, and virtual uh, broadcasting, which is going on all over the place these days. So it's, it's a difficult enterprise uh, to try to get they, those things done and, and so we're 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 pivoting just as everyone else is i think we have mr singh back with us uh, you're talking about uh, about long-term care mr singh just before your your call dropped there uh and about the federal government's role in that yes absolutely i mean i i believe very strongly we can start with getting uh profit out of long-term care with rivera which is the second largest provider of long-term care and it is currently owned entirely by a federal agency we put that forward as an idea because we want to do something. We don't want the status quo to remain the same. And the Liberals, uh, Justin Trudeau, teamed up with the Conservatives to vote against that initiative. But it's something we can do, and it would save lives. It would bring Rivera into public ownership so that it could be public delivery of care so that people are put first. And it's something that we believe very strongly must happen. Well, I'm going to ask you, and I know we're getting into the provincial area here because we're talking about health care and, and not just promises and, and policies, but enforcement of those policies. And, and no policy is a, it's only as good as the enforcement of it. And one of the problems you know that we've been experiencing here in Ontario with long-term care is that there are already policies in place right now, and there are already guidelines that these facilities should be following. But there's, first of all, there's no inspections, and B, even if they do find something, um, one of the rare inspections they make, there's hardly ever any enforcement. How do you, how do you overcome that? Well, one of the things that we know, on, in addition to that, is that there isn't a really clear guideline in terms of what national standards are and what, where, what works and what doesn't work. We've seen that there's been different outcomes. In some provinces, it wasn't as bad as it was in Ontario and Quebec. What can we learn from the best practices from other provinces? Outlining that and putting that together is something that even doctors and healthcare professionals in Quebec have called for. We can put forward a care guarantee. What does good care look like? For the residents, the long-term care residents, what does good care look like in terms of staffing levels for the healthcare providers? What does it look like, and what, how can we lay that out so that it is clear? And then we can look at mechanisms to make sure that it's actually happening. I, I know our time is limited here, as, as it always been. I know your schedule is pretty tight. Uh, one other element that I wanted to talk about, and, and you've talked about this extensively uh, during the first weekend or so of the campaign, uh, is, is affordability, housing affordability. And I know that you've uh, already talked about uh, allowing CMHC to uh, insure 30-year mortgages, uh, which may actually make it easier to purchase a home. The problem that we keep hearing, though, is 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 not just affordability but availability uh housing stock and that's a real concern here in ontario how does a, a, an ndp government a, a, a hope to address something like that yeah i just want to say first off it is a real big concern we're hearing from so many people that cannot find a place that's in their budget they can't find a home and they end up leaving their home communities 
not because they want to pursue a new opportunity, but because they just can't afford to stay there. And that, to me, is, is wrong. So what we're saying are two things. One, we know that there's a lot of big money that's looking at the Canadian housing market and saying we can make a profit here. We heard news not, not a, just a couple months ago of a U.S. firm that's uh, openly declared they want to buy a billion dollars of Canadian real estate. No Canadian should have to compete with a company that's got deep pockets that can buy a billion dollars of real estate. So we want to get the big money out of the housing market with a very aggressive foreign buyer's tax of 20% to discourage any foreign investment in housing so that it's Canadians that can actually buy their homes. So that's one. The second is we agree we need to just build and unleash the potential of building more homes that are within people's budgets. To do that, we want to invest in cooperative, not-for-profit. We want to incentivize uh, the private developers to build things that are actually affordable. We can do this. We need to invest public money into this, but we can make sure we tackle this crisis. Things have only gotten worse with Justin Trudeau. In the past six years, the price of a home in Hamilton has doubled, and that's something that's just so wrong. we got to fix this, and New Democrats are committed to it. When you talk about incentivizing, a private sector has to play a part in that. How do you bring them to the table? Well, one of the things that we are looking at is using a, the, a GST waiver as an incentive. Uh, waiving the GST could be a very significant incentive in supporting the building of homes that are affordable. We can also use the CMHC to say we are not going to support any CMHC-backed loans unless they meet strict criteria of affordability. So there are mechanisms and tools that we can use. It's really a question of making it a priority. We've seen with Justin Trudeau, it hasn't been a priority. In the past six years, housing has gotten more and more unaffordable. In fact, it's uh, the worst track record of any OECD country in the world when it comes to unaffordability. And that's something that shows that Justin Trudeau hasn't made this a priority. Uh, Time is limited. So much more to talk about. Hopefully this is the first of a few conversations, at least, that we can have uh, as we head towards Election Day. Mr. Singh, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, sir. It was an honor to chat. Thank you. Take, Take care. care. Jack Meet Singh, leader of the federal NDP, who's going to be in Hamilton later on today uh, and talking about housing and about long-term care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday on the program, Dr. Peter Uni was with us. Uh, he is the head, of course, of the Ontario Science Table, uh, talking about the increased number of uh, Delta variant cases. And the numbers are up in Ontario again today, by the way. That's not good news. Uh, but Dr. Uni said that, look, it, in all likelihood, there's going to have to be some sort of restriction or some form of lockdown that's going to have to be instituted once again here in Ontario to try to get this thing under control. The good news, if there's a silver lining to this, is Dr. Uni said that, look, it, that may not be as, as onerous as it sounds. It may just be limited, but it depends on how many people are going to get vaccinated because the numbers are down and it's just not looking good. A biostatistician, Ryan Imgrun, who's a regular on our program, says there is no regular world without mandating vaccines. Unfortunately, I don't think we're ever going to hit 80 to 90 percent of our population until we get the under 12 population vaccinated and until we start to mandate vaccines for certain things like going out to the grocery store, indoor dining, things like that, we need to start to mandate vaccines because if not, we will never hit that 80 to 90 percent. We'll never be able to go back to a world where we don't have masking, where we don't have physical distancing, because I think COVID-19 is going to be around for a very, very long time, especially if most of our population 
they're not going to be vaccinated. Well, uh, mandated vaccines, by the way, have been around for quite some time. Uh, you know, Ryan was just mentioning about getting the school-age children, elementary school-age children, 12 and under, uh, vaccinated. And I know that's the goal. We're hopefully going to have that done before the end of the year. But why not marry the ideas of, of the existing vaccines that are already in place with that new policy? Well, that seems to be the intent of a letter that uh, the folks from People for Education wrote uh, for the Ontario government, for Premier Ford, and I assume Education Minister Stephen Lecce and Health Minister Christine Elliott. Annie Kidder is the Executive Director of People for Education and she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Annie, I hope you're doing well these days. Thanks so much for joining us again today. I, I am doing well. I, you know, I'm sad that I have to be on the show still talking about COVID and vaccinations, not talking about education. That would be better. But other than that, I'm doing fine. Good. I'm glad to hear that. And there will be a day, I know, when mm-hmm. we can just get into that, too, and talk about curricula and things of this nature. But uh, somebody's got to poke the government a little bit from time to time and just say, look, at it. have you guys thought about this? And, and this is a, an idea whose, whose time has come, by the way. And, and I, I bristle every time somebody says, well, I'm against vaccinations. Your kids aren't going to school unless they've been vaccinated. And that's mandatory. I mean, this has been going on for quite some time. And, and the essence of the letter, as I understand it, Annie, is you're say, asking the province, look at, just include COVID vaccine in that protocol of vaccinations that kids are supposed to get anyway. That's exactly right. There's a list uh, under the Ministry of Health of what's called designated diseases. And it is mandatory for kids to be vaccinated for those diseases in order to attend school. Um, and if you, your kids aren't vaccinated, you get a note home saying your child's going to be suspended. Um, and, and it's right there. It's already the mechanism's already in place. So we are simply saying add COVID-19 to that list for eligible students, obviously for, for students 12 and over. Um, and it is, it is one, we, an, a mechanism that we already have. And it is a way we're in a kind of carrot and stick time right now mm-hmm. where we need some sticks. We need to make some things uh, mandatory, as your previous guests have said. Um, because it will push people to get this done. Um, we're never going to be able to push the absolute, you know, I think it's going to inject, you know, 5G into my system or whatever. You're not going to change those people's mind minds. But for the people who are just a little bit hesitant or who need a bit more of a push, making them mandatory is the thing we have to do right now. And it is surprising, and we looked at the numbers, uh, that right now it's under 60% of 12 to 17-year-olds are fully vaccinated. Um, we've got to get that number up, and we've got to get it up right now. So our letter to the Minister of Health and Minister of Education says it's urgent uh, that we make this change, and then that we make it really easy to access um, vaccination sites. So schools should be vaccination centers, you know, just like they're polling stations, we can go there and vote, let's make them vaccination centers. But we, we have to make it mandatory, and we have to make it mandatory for staff as well. Lots of staff who work in schools have called for it to be mandatory mandatory so all the teachers federations have said yes it should be mandatory and i'm not quite sure uh why um the province has been so slow to move on this well uh, we could speculate about that but and by the way this is the law it's it's called the immunization of school pupils act it's been in, in place for quite some time right now mm-hmm. and, and parents know this and you, know, you basically you're told make sure your child's vaccines vaccinations are up to date and if they're not uh, they can't go to school I mean, there are some exceptions of course for for a, a couple of different things that, that are in play here but it's it's something that's already being done and this is this is why i say people that are saying well you can't impose vaccinations well 
yeah, you can. I mean, let's let's get that off the table right now. Uh, you know, in the interest of public health, uh, governments can do this sort of thing, and they've already done this sort of thing. And why not continue it? And why not expand it? No, and I would like to confess, as a you know, probably not the most perfect parent in the world, I've had one of those letters because I didn't update one of my children's vaccines. So I got a letter saying your kid will not be able to go to school unless you get this done now and bring proof uh, to the school. Um, and you're right, there are exemptions, but there's not just an opt-out clause, I don't believe no. in this or I don't feel like it. There, That does not exist. The exemption is a medical exemption. You have to be seen by a doctor or a nurse practitioner. You have to get, you know, the paperwork done. There are some religious exemptions, but there are there isn't an exemption of, I don't like vaccinations or I don't believe in vaccines. That doesn't work. And so that's the part where I go, we already have it. It's okay. You know, even when I'm incredibly old, even when I was a kid, I had one of those yellow card things, you know, that said what I'd been vaccinated for. And my children did, too. And that was the proof of vaccination. And that's the other thing. There are there are other things that need to be done. We need a proof of vaccination certificate in Ontario. I also don't know why we're so slow to implement that. Um, BC has just announced they're doing it. Manitoba is. Quebec is. The federal government is. Um, because that will help clarify um, you know, who is vaccinated. And and we, we are in a position now where lots of, you know, to go to a baseball game, you need to show you've been vaccinated. The University Health Network in Toronto, which is all the big hospitals, has said all employees have to be vaccinated or they cannot work. They're really being hardline about it. But what, what we're ending up with in Ontario right now is a kind of mishmash of policies instead of one overriding standardized kind of policy to do with vaccines, proof of vaccination certificates, um, and and mandatory uh, vaccines in public places. I, I, I share the frustration. I can't understand why they're dragging their heels on this. I understand it's usual for government to be behind uh, public opinion on, on a number of these issues, but you just talked about a lot of the sporting events. You want to go to TIFF next uh, month uh, in Toronto, the film festival, you have to show proof of vaccination. Yeah. You're not going to get into any of the facilities. Uh, and good for them for, for doing that. Uh, and, and, and as you mentioned, this has been going on for quite some time, and it was started uh, as, as a, a shot against things like polio, measles, mumps, and whooping cough. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know what those are it's because the vaccines work that's why you don't know about it because I ho- there's a whole generation of people that say what are you talking about polio uh i'm old enough to remember not so much myself but to see the generation just before me uh people sadly well forrest gump is a great example have you ever seen the movie yeah. uh, you know l- little kids walking around in braces because they, they were struck by polio measles mumps things like that can have long-lasting uh, effects on your uh, child's personal health uh we've all but eradicated them in North America because of the vaccination program. Uh, and, and God, you know, willing, uh, we'll be able to do the same sort of thing, if not eradicate COVID, at least control it with these vaccinations. No, and I think that the other, you know, the evidence is really strong from Canada and the United States that the way we can protect younger kids who right now can't be vaccinated is by making sure everybody around them is vaccinated because there are now reports coming out from the states where way fewer people are vaccinated of young kids getting sick in the hospital um, with the new uh, Delta strain of COVID. And we have to make, it's just that the we we can do this. The mechanisms are there, as you say, um, and that and people are willing. It's not that there's this huge cry against this. There is a tiny little group that are against it. But for the most part, all 
staff in schools, all the big organizations connected to education are all saying um, we need, you know, clear, concise, concrete uh, policy and we need mandatory vaccinations. And and it's, you know, it's that it's that we have the tool in our hands. Um, I think, you know, is what makes it frustrating. And it's understanding that it's urgent. The numbers are going up every day, practically. And I can't believe that it's August again, and we're 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 in the same position that we don't even have a clear kind of back to school plan, but that we're we're still uh, haven't kind of wrestled um, to the all of the things that we need to do in order to try to keep this under control. Well, the problem here, and you and I have had this discussion before, is is we want our governments to be proactive, not reactive to situations, and and you know, especially in the education field. I mean, they've been reactive, like, well, we didn't see those numbers going up. I guess we better do something. Let's close the schools. Well, why don't we do something about it to prevent those numbers from going up? And that that's really, in, I think, of, of that's the vein that you're going here, is, is let's let's try to stop this number from going up, but stop the spread in schools. Well, I think that, you know, that, that, that all of the other reports from you know, Sick Kids Hospital and CAMH and everybody else who's been looking at the impact this has on students, um, are, it, all of the experts are saying it is vital that we keep uh, schools open, that we, we keep kids uh, learning in person. Um, and there is a danger that if we kind of don't don't grapple with this right now, that we'll end up back where we've already been with 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 schools closing. And that is so uh, it's bad for kids. It's bad for communities. It's bad for education. Um, and we have to do everything that we can to prevent that. Kids in Ontario already, uh, you know, their schools were closed for longer than any other schools in Canada. And we have to make sure that that in-person learning um, continues, that it's a choice that families feel comfortable with. Um, and because they know that we've done, you know, everything we can to make sure schools are safe. Well, because there's a ticking time bomb here, and I'm not trying to be overly dramatic about this, but, you know, the province's old numbers, own numbers, rather, they say, well, here's the stat they say is 72% of eligible youth have received one dose. Well, that, that's almost immaterial, because one dose does not protect you. There's minimal protection there. 59%, just short of 60%, have mm -hmm. had both shots. That's, that's, that's a terrible number. I mean, we've got to do something about that, and mandatory vaccines in the schools are going to do that. As Dr. Uni said, and other uh, uh, you know, epidemiologists have said, is that cohort, those young kids uh, under 12, it, if that's going to be key to try to curtail the spread of this right now because that's where the, the little incubators are going to be and the schools are going to be in a situation like that. Why not be proactive? And like you say, we're not asking Ontario to do something unbeknownst that no one else has done. We're asking them to follow the lead of a lot of all over the provinces and jurisdictions that, that are already doing this. Well, no, and if you think, I mean, if you, you know, if you think of being a staff member in a school, a teacher, support staff, principal, whatever, somebody maybe who's slightly immunocompromised. So you could be fully vaccinated and still be at risk. And it's not enough to say if you're not vaccinated, you have to get tested once a week. That doesn't cut it. Um, that will not work to protect people. And vaccinations do. Um, and still leaving it still now um, when it's, you know, two weeks till school starts, leaving it as kind of optional, um, just it's it seems uh, irresponsible. It flies in the face of evidence, um, and it flies in the face of the need uh, for uh, you know all students uh, to be able to go to school, 
uh, to be able to, to, you know, to learn, to be safe, to uh, under, you know, have relationships with teachers and other students, all of the things that schools do. Um, so that it's, you know, what's frustrating right now is we've got the numbers, we've got the evidence, we know who isn't vaccinated. Uh, we know, as you just said, that 40% of 12 to 17-year-olds aren't fully vaccinated yet. We have the mechanisms to do something about it. It's time to act. What are you hearing from parents? Because uh, anecdotally, I'm hearing a lot of them, of course, are in the same situation that you just described. You're saying, well, what's, what's the school you're going to look like? We're not sure. So they're opting to stay at home with their kids. And, and that's problematic because that causes its own set of concerns and problems. Uh, and a number of them have told me if we were more concerned and more confident that the system and the school's environment was going to be safer, we'd send our kids back there. But we're not there yet. Well, no, and I think that one of the issues now that's being raised is that families were had to make a choice in some boards quite a long time ago about whether or not their kids were going to school in person or online. And some of them now are second-guessing their choices and going, oh, the numbers are going up and everybody isn't vaccinated and maybe I should have picked online school. And it is much, much better for kids to be going to school in person. But it's also much better for uh, kids not to be in families that are feeling incredibly anxious about what's, you know, whether or not schools are safe. So um, they, they're definitely just anecdotally and looking at all the kind of, uh, you know, chat on social media, families are really uh, getting more and more concerned as opposed to what they should be, which is feeling more and more assured that, you know, the grown-ups have this in hand. They know what they're doing. They've got a clear policy. The other thing that we've been calling for for uh, a year and a half is a health and education task force, a, an advisory table where everybody's at the table together. You know, we've got the science table. Thank goodness. We've got vaccination tables. We've got all sorts of other groups to do with health, but not one for education. So what we don't have then is is everybody at the table, teachers, support staff, principals, school board directors, health uh, people from public health, policymakers, students, uh, deans of education. We need the experts there and the people with experience on the ground to understand, you know, to give advice on how to implement policy. Because, I mean, we, you know, there was a sort of a policy announced a couple of weeks ago about um, about back to school. And what it asks of principals is, close to ridiculous in terms of how complicated it is and it differentiates between vaccinated and non-vaccinated kids but it doesn't say how principals are supposed to know who is or isn't mm-hmm. vaccinated and it doesn't require vaccination so you know that's the other thing is having a task force for the whole rest of this year to make sure that we're getting good you know coherent advice from people with experience and expertise so that we're we are doing everything we can to not just keep schools safe but to make sure that kids are learning that their mental health is being taken care of you know that we're making schools what they should be 
Well, uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, who's the Chief Medical Officer here in Ontario, says that uh, he is actually reviewing some of those possibilities, including what you're suggesting here. So, uh, fingers crossed, Annie, that uh, that they think, hey, this is the smartest way to go, because I, I think it's it's the path that, that we need to follow here. Uh, thanks for the initiative on this, as always. Uh, great job, as always, from People for Education. Uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon, hopefully, about a successful enterprise here, Annie. Exactly. <laughs> thanks a lot. Love All right. It. Take care. Annie Kidder, Executive Director of People for Education. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.